Let's pray and ask God to help us understand his word. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for giving us your word, the Bible. We thank you that it teaches us the truth about Jesus. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you'll help us to understand more clearly this morning who he is, what he has done, and how we should respond. We pray that you'll help us not just to hear and understand this, but to put it into practice in our lives. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There are, um, there are lots of different ideas out there about who the real Jesus is. You ask some atheists and they'll tell you there's no such person. Jesus never existed. He's a myth, a fairy tale. Some people would see Jesus as one of kind of a long line of religious leaders like a, a Buddha or a Muhammad or something like that. Or, or, or there's always some new book about the the, the, the real Jesus, isn't there? There's uh, the search for the historical Jesus or there's the latest book by Barbara Thiering or John Spong or the Jesus Seminar or, or you've got the Da Vinci Code claiming to know the truth or the guy who reckons he's discovered the tomb of Jesus or, or, or whatever. There's always some latest thing. Many people would say that Jesus was a good teacher. He told people to love their neighbours as themselves. He, he encouraged people to be more spiritual and peaceful. On the other hand, you've got your liberation theologians. They say Jesus was a revolutionary, a martyr, the, the patron saint of resisting the status quo. Uh, many people, people who, particularly people who've been through like a church school or something, they have a a vague respect for Jesus. They're aware that he's a person of significance, quite popular, although perhaps not as popular as John Lennon, someone they should maybe think about someday. Or increasingly in our society, there are people who are just plain ignorant about Jesus. I've told you before the story I heard from Kel Richards. He was in a jewellery shop and a man was there asking uh, if, if he could look at crosses to go on a necklace. The girl behind the counter said to him, well, we've got two kinds of crosses, sir. There are the plain ones, or there are these ones with a little man on them. There's a truckload of ideas out there about Jesus, um, ideas that often contradict each other. So how can we know the real Jesus? With all these different answers before us, how, how can we know the truth about him? How can we know if that means anything for us today? I mean, it's a bit like a detective story or something, isn't it? With all these different answers, we need to ask, uh, will the real Jesus please stand up? Like in a detective story, what we need to do to get the right answer is to find the best evidence. The best evidence. And the best evidence, when you're talking about history, when you're talking about someone who allegedly existed in history, the best evidence, the place to go for the best evidence, is to the original sources. The original sources. And this book of Mark, that we're going to be looking at for the next six months, is a great example of an original source. Many people would say, in fact, probably most people would say nowadays, that Mark is the first ever biography of Jesus to be written. First ever. Uh, it was probably written within about 30 years of Jesus' life. Mark himself was an early Christian. 
He may well have known Jesus. In fact, uh, we'll see later, there might even be just a little cameo of his involvement um, in, uh, in Jesus' life in the Gospel of Mark itself. He's a very early Christian. In fact, the very, the very first Christians, the very first church, used to meet at his mum's house. Uh, this man went on mission trips with Paul and Barnabas, um, suffered, uh, had a bit of a bit of a problem where he ran away but then came back again suffered some more went through all kinds of hardships he was also known as a man who spent a lot of time with the apostle peter you know peter jesus best friend peter in fact according to the early church historian papias um, mark wrote this gospel from stuff that peter said to him from peter's preaching and and, and peter's uh, stories and so on uh, papias wrote papias wrote in uh he died in 130 AD, so he wrote sometime before then. Uh, Papias said, Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered. So Peter was Mark's main source. What we've got here is pretty amazing reference, don't you think? And you can trace the history of it uh, right back to really nearly about 100, 100 or so AD. We've got quite original documents. We don't have the original of Mark's Gospel, but we've got very early copies of Mark's Gospel to say that what we have today is really what he wrote so many years ago. Well, what we've got here is a very, very good historical source written by a bloke who, who may well have known Jesus personally and his information is coming from Jesus' best friend. This is good quality evidence from someone who is in a position to know the truth about Jesus and from someone who suffered for telling that truth. So what does this original source have to say? Who, who is the real Jesus? What, what did he really come to do? And what does it mean for us? Mark starts off by telling us who he's writing about. He says this is the beginning of his story about Jesus. And specifically Mark says that he's writing the gospel about Jesus. Now, gospel is a word that gets thrown around a bit, but uh, not everyone understands what it means. The, the word gospel was used to describe good news of victory. It was a, a word that uh, it was basically used by kings. A, a king who, would, who had won a battle would send the gospel out to his people, the, the good news of his victory. Of course, it wasn't good news for the enemies, but for the king's people, it was good news. Mark is writing, he says, good news about Jesus, with the emphasis on good news on, on, on a victory of Jesus. Which Jesus? Well, Mark says, it's the Jesus who is the Christ. Now, there's another word that's often misunderstood, uh, Christ. Christ is not Jesus' surname. Um, the word Christ or Messiah, something like Messiah in Hebrew, it means anointed. Anointing is what you do when you are setting someone apart for a role. So, for example, um, there was the headline in the Telegraph last week, Gilchrist retires, anoints Haddon as his successor. All right, in that sense, Brad Haddon is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed wicket keeper of Australia. Now, historically, the way that you would anoint someone was to pour something on their head. Cricketers probably do it with beer or something like that, but uh, more traditionally it would have been oil. I don't think Adam Gilchrist has done that yet for Brad Haddon. Um, but, but in some way, Mark tells us Jesus was anointed. He was a Christ. Of course, he doesn't mean the next anointed Australian wicketkeeper, although I'm sure he'd do very well. Now, in those days, um, 
And still today, anointing was especially done for a, a king or a queen. You anoint a king or a queen. Um, so, for example, Queen Elizabeth was anointed. Uh, she had oil poured on her head to set her apart as queen. Perhaps some people here remember the day of the, the anointing of Queen Elizabeth. I'm getting some nods. Well, that's what Mark means by Jesus being the Christ. He is anointed by God to be the king of Israel. Now, a thousand years before Jesus, in the time of King David, God made some promises. He promised that a man from the family of King David would be the anointed king over Israel forever. But you've got to realise, at the time of Jesus, there was no such king. There hadn't been for hundreds of years. And so Israel were waiting for the anointed king in the line of David to come. Right at the beginning of the gospel, Mark is laying it out. He's saying the wait is over. Jesus is the promised king. Jesus is the Christ. Mark also describes Jesus as the son of God. That's another expression that's often misunderstood. This is not a, 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 a title of deity here, son of God. In the Old Testament, the son of God is the term used for Israel. It refers to God's people. So, for example, when uh, Moses was speaking to Pharaoh in the days when Israel was in slavery in Egypt, he said this. He said, this is what the Lord says, Pharaoh. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go. Well, God says in Hosea, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Do you get it? The son of God is Israel. But, but as the Old Testament progresses, the title Son of God comes to be narrowed a bit. It comes to be focused on one particular Israelite, and that is this king in the line of David. So Psalm 2, our first reading, did you notice? A, a psalm there, um, a, 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 known to be a psalm of David, and God says to David in Psalm 2, You are my son. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance. You are my son. You, you'll rule the world. You are my son, the king of Israel, the king of the world. Uh, and God said of David's, uh, of David's own son, who, who would uh, again be ruler, he said, uh, this is 2 Samuel 7, I will be his father and he will be my son. So the son of God is another way of talking about Israel and especially it's talking about this Christ, the king in the line of David. Again, right from the start, Mark is making it clear. Jesus is an Israelite, the promised king. It's all there in the first verse, densely packed verse, all these concepts. Gospel, Christ, Son of God. Have a look with me, Mark chapter 1 and verse 1. Mark chapter 1 and verse 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus, Christ, the Son of God. Mark goes on to tell us how it began, how the story began. Back in the Old Testament, God promised that he would come and, uh, and rescue his people Israel. He'd come in judgment and, uh, and with salvation for his people. He was going to establish Israel securely in the land under the rule of the Christ forever. And in a number of places in the Old Testament, God says that he will first send a messenger, someone to prepare the way, someone to alert the people that he's coming. Mark quotes a couple of uh, verses like that from the Old Testament, from Malachi and from Isaiah, although he only mentions Isaiah. Verse 2. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, and first comes a bit from Malachi, 
I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. And then comes Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So God promised to send this messenger to, to prepare the way and Mark now tells us that the messenger is John the Baptist. So John comes and he calls on Israel to turn back to God. He calls on Israel to be true and faithful sons of God. Sons of God who are well-pleasing to God. And John got Israel to symbolise their intention with a special ceremony. Now, this is a ceremony that is almost universally misunderstood among Christians. So, so listen carefully just for a second and see, see if you can understand what this ceremony is about. It's a special ceremony that John gets the Israelites to do. And what it is, it's a kind of a reenactment of Israel's initial entry into the land. What John did, he was out in the desert, outside the promised land, and he got them to come out to him, outside the promised land, on the other side of the Jordan River. And then he got them to do what Israel did in the time of Joshua when they first came into the promised land. He got them to go through the Jordan and into the land. He, he baptised them, that is, he dunked them. There's nothing, nothing special about the word baptised, it just means dunk or something like that. He dunked them in the Jordan and then he sent them back off into the promised land to go and live like God's well-pleasing son ought to live. See how it works, this reenactment of the entry into the land. So verse 4. And so John came, baptising in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him Confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the Jordan River, saying, we want to be well-pleasing sons of God living in the land. Mark then describes John as being like Elijah from the Old Testament. That's verse 6. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And then Mark tells us John's message. He tells us how John paved the way for God to come and rescue his people. Uh, John said, a great one is coming after me. One uh, just immensely great, one who will baptise with the Holy Spirit. And uh, for clever Ezekiel readers, that should be ringing lots of bells, baptising with the Holy Spirit. That's uh, talking about the bringing in of the new covenant, where God promises that he will, um, he will give people new hearts and a new spirit and establish them securely in the, in the land under David as king. Here is the man who's going to bring in this new covenant. Verse 7. This is John's message. Verse 7. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. And so we're ready and waiting. Waiting for the great one. The way is prepared. How is God going to come and rescue his people? Who's, who's this great one going to be? Well, it's Jesus. Uh, Jesus comes, he's baptised by John, he, he affirms his intention to be God's well-pleasing son in the promised land and God fills him with the Holy Spirit and says, you are my son, I am well pleased with you. Verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you, 
I am well pleased. He's God's son, the true Israelite, the true David, the one who is pleasing to God, the one who, according to Psalm 2, will now ask the Lord and God will make the nations his inheritance. He'll rule them with an iron scepter. He'll, he'll crush his enemies to pieces like pottery. Sounds great. Sounds like we should all be roses from here. Let's roll out the red carpet for the king. Let's, let's bring on God's victory, the good news. But, but there are just a couple of echoes from the Old Testament in what God says that should make us slow down. God says to Jesus, you are my son whom I love. Only one Old Testament reference exactly like that, and that's where God says to Abraham, take your son whom you love, take him and sacrifice him. Or or those words, with you I am well pleased. Sounds good when you first hear it. Here's God's well-pleasing son, the, the, the true Israelite. But back in the Old Testament, that's also what God said to another one of his sons, a special Israelite who comes to be known as the servant. And in the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah, where this quote comes from, it's Isaiah 42, uh, we find out that things are not going to be easy for this servant. In fact, the Bible says this servant will die for the sins of God's people, uh, led like a lamb to the slaughter, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. It's just echoes, just illusions. But for Old Testament readers, we should be feeling slightly disturbed at this point. The, the, the good news of, of victory of King Jesus, it might not be quite the walkover that we expect. And that's confirmed by the next thing that happens to Jesus. Uh, Jesus has just been baptised by the Holy Spirit, established as God's well-pleasing son, and then the first thing that happens, he's sent out by the Holy Spirit into the desert to be tempted. If you think about it again, it's just like what happened to Israel. Uh, God says to Israel, um, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And then the first thing God does with his son called out of Egypt is to test him in the desert. For 40 years, Israel wanders in the desert and basically they... They fail every test that's presented towards them. They are the kings of grumbling and whinging and complaining and sinning and falling. Well, Jesus, God's beloved, well-pleasing son, like Israel, is sent out into the desert. For 40 days, he's in the wilderness being tempted. For 40 days, he has to do battle with Satan. For 40 days, he's surrounded by scary animals. But with the help of God's angels, Jesus succeeds where Israel failed. Verse 12. At once, the Spirit sent him out into the desert. And he was in the desert for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. I'm not a, a big fan of whodunits. I know there are you know, millions of them on TV, everything that's got all these letters, CSI and MIP and QRS and so on, all these sorts of whodunit things. Um, but you know the sort of, that, that detective genre of working out whodunit? But it's, it's, I'm not a big fan, but, but it seems to me there are two kinds of whodunits. You've got, uh, firstly, the Agatha Christie model, where you don't know whodunit. It's not till right at the end of the story that... Uh, uh, whoever the detective is, gathers them all together. I suppose you're wondering why I've gathered you all together and then, and then names who the person is. Not till the last page that you find out who done it. But then there's the Columbo model 
Uh, in, in the very first scene, you find out who done it. You know exactly who done it. It was the butler with the candlestick in the library or whatever. You, you know exactly who done it right from the beginning. And then for the rest of the show, what you do is you watch, as in his kind of bumbling way, Columbo works out what you already know. Well, Mark, it seems to me, is a Columbo fan rather than Agatha Christie fan. Because what he's done, he's told us straight away what his book is on about. No, no secrets. Already we know exactly who Jesus is, the promised king. Already we know what he's come to do, to, to win victory, to judge, to, to rescue his people, to establish God's kingdom and the new covenant. Already we've got hints that it's, uh, it will involve suffering as he fulfills the mission of the servant, as he overcomes temptation and, and, and Satan, as he has to succeed where Israel before him failed. We know all this stuff already. And now what we're going to do for the next six months as we work through the story is we will watch as the characters in the story find out what we already know for themselves. Okay, well, pretty, pretty impressive, pretty unique sort of a character, Jesus, don't you think? But the thing about Mark's presentation about Jesus is this. It, is, it has implications for you and for me. This is not just interesting history. This Jesus, the real Jesus, makes claims on your life and mine. And again, Mark doesn't leave us in any suspense about it. He tells us in the words of Jesus exactly what we need to do. After John is put in jail, again, just a, a dark echo that tells us things are not all going to be roses in this journey. After John is put in jail, Jesus starts telling his message. He says, preempting Gough Whitlam, it's time. God's king is here. God is establishing his kingdom. And in the light of that, Jesus says, you need to repent and you need to believe the good news of the victory of the Messiah. Verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Lots of ideas about Jesus out there. But just about what just about all of these modern ideas about Jesus have got in common is this. It doesn't matter if you're talking about Barbara Thiering or John Spong or whoever the latest heretic it is. It, all of these theories have got the same thing in common. They don't matter for you and for me. They have no relevance for you and for me. Jesus, the, the Jesus of these, Jesus seminars and Da Vinci codes and everything, he can be safely ignored, put away in a box and forgotten about. But you cannot do that with the real Jesus. The real Jesus is the king in God's eternal kingdom. The real Jesus will judge the world. That's what a king does. The real Jesus will win victory. He will rule God's people forever and God will crush all his enemies. This Jesus has come. That means the time has come. God's kingdom is here, is near, and we need to respond. We need to choose our sides, as Warren called on us to do last week. We need to believe that he is the king, and we need to stop rebelling against him. We need to act on what we believe. We need to repent. 
Stop running life our way. Stop being our own king. Stop living for ourselves. Submit to him as king. Live for him. Now that means we need to be pardoned for not having done it for all of our lives so far. And the great news we'll see in Mark's gospel is that through the death and resurrection of Jesus we can be pardoned. We can find amnesty. We are able, sinners as we are, to, to enter into God's kingdom through faith in Jesus. But we have to do it. We have to believe the good news of King Jesus and turn around and join his kingdom. Do you get the implication of Mark's message? Well, have you done it? Have you done that? Do you believe the good news about King Jesus? Have you accepted his pardon and submitted to him as your king? I know there are lots of different ideas about Jesus out there, but remember what we're dealing with here. This is an original source. This comes from people who knew the real Jesus. This is good evidence. So look, can I I suggest to you, if Jesus is not your king, if you are here this morning and you do not believe this good news, can I suggest that you think very, very seriously about this matter? I don't know where you've got your information about Jesus from. I I, I don't know where you've come up with this information that makes you think you can ignore him. I I don't know where you've come up with this information that makes you think you are safe when you are not bowing your knee to King Jesus. But let me tell you, it had better be a very reliable source. It had better be a very reliable source because the real Jesus is no myth. He's not just some interesting figure you can ignore. The real Jesus is the eternal king in God's kingdom and he matters to you more than you can possibly imagine. Your eternity is at stake. You will either be part of Jesus' kingdom or you'll be crushed as his enemy forever. There is no neutral ground here. If you don't believe this stuff, can I suggest that you very carefully check your facts? Too much is at stake for you to rely on bad evidence. This is good evidence. Can I suggest you believe it? If you do believe what Mark says here, you've got great reason to rejoice. Jesus is the king. You have a place in God's eternal kingdom. You will live under Jesus as king in, in the ultimate promised land forever. It's great news. But if you do believe that Jesus is your king, well, make very sure about your repentance, won't you? Don't, uh, don't fool yourself about this. You can say you believe it till the cows come home. You can say Jesus is your king, but talk is cheap. Real repentance means that you will do what he says. You will live out what you say you believe. Friends, friends, there is good news. Mark has good news for us. The real Jesus is king. By his grace, you can be a part of his kingdom. So repent and believe the good news. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank and praise you because you are the God who keeps your promises. We thank you that you promised to send a messenger and you did, John the Baptist. 
We thank you that you promised to prepare the way for, for you to come and rescue your people. We thank you that that happened and you did come to rescue your people through the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the King. We thank and praise you that he has established the new covenant and given the gift of your Holy Spirit to your people. And we thank you for the, for, for those who trust in him. We can now be your people with you in your eternal kingdom forever. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we may be sincerely believing the good news and sincerely living lives of repentance. We pray for each person here this morning that you help them to realise the truth about the Lord Jesus and to respond rightly. For we ask it in his name. Amen.